0: Father in heaven, we come now and we beg of you that you'll open our hearts to give attention to your word and that through your word, through your word that you might change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I do pray for people in our congregation this morning. Um, I I pray especially for the moms who are pregnant. It's a season where we've got lots of pregnant ladies and I pray you'll bless them and that you'll remind them amidst the pains of pregnancy that you're with them and that you love them. But I pray that you will draw near to them, that you'll help them to prepare for their baby boy or baby girl. Lord, we pray for those in Washington who were suffering because of the mudslide in Oslo. Lord, I pray that you will give uh, wisdom to those who are helping find the victim's families who have not yet been contacted, but I pray that you'll help those who are in agonizing grief over the unknown about the missing loved one, but I pray that you'll comfort them, that you'll draw near to them. Lord, it's likely the deadliest single landslide in U.S. history, and you're there, even though there are lots of people who wander right now if you even exist. Lord, we confess that it's only by your grace that that hasn't happened in a so, that there hasn't been a tornado to take us all out. Lord, it's by your sovereign hand that you withstrain the whirlwind and you protect us. Even now, even in the next 25 minutes, Lord, you restrain evil so that we might be able to hear your word. And Lord, would you restrain the evil of our own hearts? Would you lead us into repentance? Lord, so many of us who have, are suffering grief wonder, are you there? Do you care? And so, Father, would you remind them that you are here and you love us and you are not angry at us and that you want to change us by the power of your Spirit. Lord, I thank you for those in our congregation who have new jobs. Lord, I thank you, um, Father, for Nathan Weber beginning a new job this week. I thank you, Father, for Brad Ruttman, who will be commissioned this afternoon in his new position at the base. Lord, I thank you for those men. I pray you'll protect them in their new roles, that you'll guide them, you'll give them wisdom, and that they may view their vocation as their ministry, and they'll glorify you every day they go to work. Lord, I pray for those guys who are in jobs that they don't love. I pray, Lord, that you'll remind them that you're with them in that. And I pray you'll help them, Father, to feel your pleasure as they work. You'll give them wisdom as to how they can best provide for their family, but also how they can best extend your kingdom through doing excellent work at the vocation to which you've called them. So, Father, would you bless the men and women in our congregation who are working, who are punching the clock. Help them to do so, not just to get a paycheck, but to bring honor and glory to your kingdom by doing it with excellence. Now, Fathers, we turn our heart to your word. We pray that you will quiet our anxious spirit and that you'll remind us of the good news, the greatest news, indeed the most fantastic news in all the world, that you love sinners, and that you came to save us and send us out. And so work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a man in um, the history of the church whose name is John Owen. Some of you may know this name. In 1616, here's a story. The same year that William Shakespeare died, four years before the Puritans set sail for the New World, John Owen was born. He was what many call the Puritan of the Puritans. He was born in England. He married a woman named Mary Rook. They were married for 31 years. Together, together, they had 11 children. One of those children made it to the age of one. And they buried her when she was five. And then a few years after their child dies, Mary, his beloved wife, dies. So I want you to imagine this with me. I want you to imagine being married to somebody and having 11 children. And every three years of your adult married life, you bury a baby. So let's just imagine 25, 28, 31, 34, 37, 40, 43, 46, 49, 52, and then 55. John Owen and his wife buried 11 children. There are 11 graves for their kids. And then I want you to imagine just a few years later that your beloved wife dies. Listen, there, in literature, there are all kinds of descriptions of grief. We've been looking at that the last couple of weeks. And the scholars typically tell us that there are four different kinds of grief. There's the kind of grief that's called disenfranchised grief— A a doctor named Kenneth Doka came up with this many, many years ago. Disenfranchised grief is the kind of grief you have when you love somebody who has been disenfranchised from society and then they die. And you're really not given permission to mourn them because the public hated them, but you deeply loved them. This happens a lot, for example, with people who loved convicted criminals. This happened, for example, to Jeffrey Dahmer's family when he died. They could not grieve his death because the world rejoiced over a serial killer dying. This is disenfranchised grief. Then there's a kind of grief that's called chronic sorrow. Some of you know what this is like. It's called living grief. It's when you get the news that your child is born with cerebral palsy or you get the news that your child will be mentally or physically retarded for life or you get the news that somehow the diagnoses that you have or your spouse has, your children has, will not go away in six months, and it's not going to get any better. It's called chronic sorrow. It's called living grief. And many of you know what that's like. Many of you live with chronic sorrow. You have for years, and you know the pain of living grief. There's a third kind of grief. It's called the grief that comes from injustice. It's what you it's what you experience whenever you're the re- you're you're the victim of a legitimate injustice like global poverty. 1.4 billion people live on less than a dollar 25 a day. Global poverty is an example of grief that comes from injustice. And then there is what we call common grief or universal grief. And that is the kind of grief that John Owen experienced. And that's the kind of grief that you and I will inevitably experience if we haven't already, if we're not experiencing it right now. It's the kind of grief that comes when you bury a loved person or you bury 11 children. And in this story, in John chapter 11, you're about to read perhaps the most famous example outside of the death of Jesus of common grief. It's the story of the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. So let's look at it together. If you have your Bibles, please have them open to John chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 down through verse 46. This is the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, and but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus, who had not yet come into the village, was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Listen. This is one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. All the way through the book of John, Jesus tries again and again to show his people, these are the signs that I'm really the Messiah. I'm going to show you six of them. Jesus lays them out. The wedding of Cana, what happened there? Water was changed into wine. And in John chapter 4, he heals an official's son just by the power of his word from a great distance. The son is healed. And then later, in chapter 5, you have a man who is an invalid who's been 48 years in that state, and Jesus heals him. And then in chapter 6, you have Jesus doing this miracle of the food, providing a great quantity of food in John chapter 6. And then in John chapter 9, you've got a man who's blind, who's healed. Again, Jesus is showing you signs of the kingdom. He's pulling the future into the present, saying that I am here. I am the anointed Christ. I am bringing my kingdom to bear now. And then in this final, ultimate sign in John chapter 11, this final sign of Jesus' messianic authority before he goes to the cross, Jesus raises a person from the dead. And here's the point. The principle of this passage is not that there was a person raised from the dead, it was a cool idea. The the principle of this passage is this, that Jesus wants you and I to believe this truth, that the light through the darkness of our grief is a belief in the resurrection. The light. If I were, for example, to say to you, the light, the light through the darkness of your grief, is a belief in the resurrection. In other words, the only thing that gives you clarity in the midst of your grief is a sure, certain hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? That's the point that Jesus is trying to make in John chapter 11. The light through the darkness of your grief is a belief in the resurrection. And what's amazing about this passage is that Jesus shows this to us again and again and how tender he is with these two sisters. Notice what it says, that Jesus says, is the purpose of grief. Listen, in verse 4, lower your eyes and you can see it. In verse 4, Jesus says, look, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus wants us to know that the light through the darkness of our grief is a belief in the resurrection. And he shows Mary and Martha and his disciples four things about grief in order to get them there. The first is that all suffering, all grief is for the glory of God. That's what he says in verse 4. It cannot get more explicit. And then later he illustrates it by saying, when he heard the news about Lazarus dying, if you knew that one of your great buddies was dying, you would run to St. Francis. You would haul up those stairs in that elevator, and you would go to their bedside. Jesus hears Lazarus is dying, and Jesus hangs out for two more days. Why does he do that? He does it so that he may be glorified in the sign he was about to perform. All suffering is for the glory of God. Not only that, but second, in our suffering, in Lazarus' suffering, Jesus enters into our grief. He enters into danger himself. Notice that Jesus is... Hanging out with his disciples, right, outside of Judea, about 15 miles away on the other side of the Jordan River. They had just, in chapter 9 and 10, they had just been threatened to be stoned by the Pharisees. And here Jesus is with his disciples outside by the Jordan, and he hears about Lazarus. And two days he hangs out with his disciples, probably praying. It's allu- it alludes to that later in the chapter. And he says to the disciples, let's go back into the lion's den for the sake of our brother Lazarus. And they said, you're crazy. Why would you want to do that? Because I love him. And listen, this isn't just a metaphorical interpretation of Scripture. Jesus enters into harm's way to enter into the grief and sorrow of his beloved friends, Mary and Martha. And you know what he does for you? He does not stand idly back. He comes into your sorrow. He comes into your grief because that's the whole point of his incarnation. That Jesus didn't just stand back. He said, no, I want to go into their grief, the grief of this world, this broken, messed up, jacked up world. And I want to enter into it with them. A man of sorrows, Isaiah 53 says, and he was acquainted with what? With grief. Jesus in a sense, endangered himself by entering into the sorrow and the grief of Mary and Martha. He does the same with you. The third thing about grief, the first thing is that it's always for the glory of God. The second thing is that he enters into your grief. He endangers himself, if you will. He enters into it with you despite great cost to himself. These Jews wanted to stone him, and yet he didn't care. He goes back into Judea in order to be with Lazarus. The third thing is that Jesus knows your temperament. Now I'm going to camp out here for a few minutes. Jesus knows you. In fact, he knows you so well, he knows how to handle you. Like, you think about your, like, your spouse knows you very, very well, but even there's some times when there's friction because they don't know really how to handle you. Jesus knows how to handle you. Notice what he says to Martha. Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and she storms up to Jesus, and it says that she met him. It's the same verb that's used for kings coming and hostility to confront another king. She gets in his face, and she says, if you had, not, if you had been here, this would never would have happened. And what does Jesus do? He knows what she needs, and what she needs isn't a warm, fuzzy hug. And Jesus gets right back in her face, and he says, your brother will live. And she goes, oh, I know, I know we'll live. I know theology. I'm a, I learned under the Pharisees, Jesus, Isaiah 65, 17 says that the old things have passed away, the new things have come, the old things will be forgotten, the new are here to the glory. I know that. And Jesus looks at Martha and he says, no Martha, you're missing the point. I'm not just talking about your theology, I'm talking about the object of your affections. Do you know that I am the resurrection and the life? I'm not talking about are you trying to rationally understand why your brother died, but do you know that I'm with you? I'm here. And Jesus, like a master debater, takes Martha and all of her aggression head-on, and he confronts her with the truth that Jesus is the focal point of all of Scripture and all of history. Not just do you believe in the general resurrection, like all Jews did, by the way, except for the Sadducees, but that Jesus himself is the resurrection because you have life in him. He was trying to show her that this death is for the glory of God in order to reveal Jesus to be the resurrection life that she needed. And then notice what happens with Martha, right? Martha then confesses after Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, yet shall he live. Martha, he says to Martha, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ. She says the exact same thing we just said in the Apostles' Creed. I believe that you are the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And notice what happens to Martha. Martha, remember, right, John assumes that his disciples have heard the story of Mary and Martha because he tells the story later, but he talks about them as though the disciples knew about them, so it's probable that they knew Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, where you've got the story of Mary and Martha and their interaction with Jesus. Remember, when Martha's in the kitchen you know, busting it, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and he says, Martha, Mary is the one who's chosen the better place right now. And here is Martha, the same personality, the same aggression. She comes after Jesus and confronts him to his face. And Martha is so amazed by the way God handles her that she believes. And then notice what she does. Then she goes to her sweet introverted sister, Mary, and she goes, hey, Mary. She pulls her aside into the room. She goes, hey, the teacher is here. Jesus is here. And you know what? He's calling for you. And the irony of that is that did Jesus ever call for Mary? No. But Martha was so amazed, she was so confronted with the fact that the solution to her griefs, the light through the darkness of her grief, was a belief in the resurrection, the belief in Christ's resurrection and work for her, that she ran and she got her sister to tell her about it. Jesus didn't ask her to do that. She just did it. And she said, "Hey, Mary. Jesus is looking for you. And when Mary is there, right, with all these Jews that came in a couple of miles from Jerusalem to Bethany to weep and to mourn with her, that was, that's the way that we handled it in community back then. The Jews would weep together with those who wept. They would come to the house, and they would mourn. They would mourn together with those who were suffering and grieving. So it would be uncommon for there to be dozens of people in that house crying together with Mary just to give her permission to wail and to weep. It was the way that the community cared for each other. And when they see Mary get up and run out of that house, they think she's going to the tomb, and so they follow her, and she goes to Jesus. And notice the differences in their temperaments. Martha got to his face and said, if you had been here, this never would have happened. And what did Mary do? It says that she fell at his feet. Very typical of Mary, isn't it? But notice that Mary is just as angry and just as sad as Martha is because she says the exact same thing to him. Jesus, if you had been here, this never would have happened. But I want you to notice this. Some of you are very, very good at helping people who are grieving by giving them truth. But Jesus didn't just have a one-stop shop he enters into the temperament of Mary in such a way that he helps her grieve in a way that's helpful to her. He didn't say to Mary, Mary, get up! Believe the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't even say a word to Mary. He puts his hand around her, and he holds her. And he looks at the Jews, and he says, where have you put them? Listen, Since the 1950s, there has been this very common understanding of grief that was developed by a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It's called the five stages of grief. Undoubtedly, you've heard of these, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Those are the five typical Stages of grief that most of the world tends to orchestrate when they think about grief. They tend to think about it in those steps. What Jesus says is that grief is more like a chemical compound of all of those together. So that for some people like Martha it may come out in rage and anger. And other people like Mary it may come out in isolation and loneliness and despair. And the one of the ways we can help each other is by learning how Jesus cared for those who were grieving. He didn't have a one-stop method. He didn't have a one-way shop. He said, look, different people need different approaches. And one of the ways that you grow in your relationship with Christ is that you grow in your relationship with each other and so that you know as you're married the way your wife needs you to handle her men. And wives, you know that you know the way you should handle your husband. Sometimes it means that you give them all truth, much like Jesus gave Martha. And sometimes it means you just give them your fellowship. And you just stop talking. And all the women are going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Jesus knows how to handle you. And I want you to know, those of you who are in grief or who are going to struggle with grief, it's inevitable, it'll be here soon enough, that Jesus is with you. And he's trying to help you see the truth about himself through your grief in such a way that it drives you to faith. It drives you to believe more in the resurrection. Listen, if you have a a father who loses his job, that man may be totally crushed. If you have a, a, a mother who loses her job, she may be really disappointed, but she may not be crushed. But on the other hand, if you have a man who loses a child, you know, he may be sorely crushed, but not despairing. You have a mother who loses a child, she's despairing and crushed. People respond to different events in their life in different ways. That's the point. And for some of us, certain griefs are more painful than others. And some of you have a kind of... um, Chronic sorrow because you're going through a very difficult time and you just don't know if you're going to get beyond it. And you may not. But Jesus wants you to know that he is with you in that. That he loves you. That he's drawing near to you. That he's holding you in the midst of it. To remind you that there's a resurrection to come. There are four things Jesus is trying to teach us about the resurrection here. About the purpose of suffering. It's to the glory of God that's the first thing we saw. The second thing we saw was that not only is it to the glory of God, but that Jesus endangers himself for you by entering into humanity, by incarnating so that he can know your griefs together with you, just like he entered back into Judea when he was threatened to be stoned for the sake of Lazarus. The third thing is that Jesus knows how to handle you He knows how to handle your temperament. And the fourth thing is that Jesus shows you that he and he alone is your only hope. The point of the text is that the light through the darkness of our grief is a belief in the resurrection. It says in the Old Testament, as I quoted earlier in Isaiah 65, 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. When Jesus comes to make, when he comes to make all things new, as it says in Revelation 21, 5, he will make all things new. Listen, you will, it's not like you're going to heaven with a harp issued to you and a cloud that is now your residence. You have a very real existence on earth because the earth is going to be remade. We call it heaven. The Bible refers to it as the new heavens and the new earth. And you will splash in the lake and you will run through the fields to degrees of glory and power you cannot even imagine. And it's belief in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ for you is a foretaste of the ultimate resurrection that's going to come of all who are in Christ, it's a personal, it's a sudden, it's a very real resurrection. Our bodies in the grave. Isaac men is a mortician. All those people he has helped die well. Those bodies will rise out of the grave and they will, they will be reunited with Christ on earth in his kingdom. And it's hope in that Hope that everything sad will come untrue. That gives you the ability to endure grief. Listen, all of our theology, all of our theology drives us to believe this one central truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the foretaste of the resurrection of our bodies in the end, together with him in his resurrection, is what scripture again and again points to is what gives us hope, and this is what makes Christianity utterly distinct from all other religions. I mean, all other faiths—how do you get through your grief? Well, you employ Elizabeth Kubler Ross five stages, and you go through these five stages, and eventually, you're going to outrun the grief, and you're going to be fine. That's not what Christianity says. Christianity says that your grief is like a chemical compound—one ounce of depression one ounce of anger, one ounce of acceptance, a whole bunch of questions, and that's your experience. And Jesus says he's using that combustion to drive you into deeper faith in him because he loves you, and he knows how to handle you, and he will deal tenderly with you. Because what happened in the passage, because Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb, didn't he? And Jesus calls out Lazarus before his disciples, before Mary and Martha. And there's a picture that Rembrandt painted many, many years later that shows that picture. John, is it on the screen? Can you help us see it? This is the picture of Rembrandt. And notice, notice where the focus of the lighting is for Rembrandt. I know it's hard to see, but the focus is on the people that are watching it. It's on Mary's face, looking at the tomb. Because Jesus says, This grief is there so that you might believe. The focus of the text is not on Lazarus, it's on the belief of the people who trusted that Jesus was truly who he said he was. So, friends, listen the light through the darkness of your grief is a belief in the resurrection. This isn't just a picture that Rembrandt painted in the 17th century, this is a picture of your future. When everything said will come untrue. When your Savior who loves you, who is with you right now in this gym, who through the echo of my voice is speaking to you, who reminds you that I am with you and that I love you, and that I'm not angry with you, and that I do these things for my glory, so that you might be driven into deeper faith in the resurrection in my name. In uh, in 1674, John Owen, after he buried 11 children and um, his wife, wrote a book called On Communion. And if you know the Puritans, they wrote books about everything. He wrote a book called On Communion. And John Owen in this book said that despite his grief, what got him through the grief of burying 11 people in his immediate family was believing that the resurrection was true. And this is what he had to say. I find nothing better or more desirable, but alas, he is holy to be desired and to be beloved. Lovely in his person, in the all-glorious sufficiency of his deity, his gracious purity and holiness of his humanity, authority, majesty, love, and power. Lovely in his birth, in the incarnation, when he was rich for our sakes becoming poor. Taking part of flesh and blood, entering into our danger so that we might partake of the same, being made of a woman, that for us he might be made under the law, even for our sakes. He was lovely in his death, yea, even most lovely to sinners, never more glorious and desirable than when he came broken and dead down from that cross. Then had he carried all of our sins into a land of forgetfulness. Then had He made peace and reconciliation for us. Then had He procured life and immortality for us. Lovely in all of His ordinances and in the whole of the spiritually glorious worship with which He had appointed to His people, whereby He draws the church near to have communion with Him and His Father. He was lovely in His vengeance that He took on sin, and He will finally execute one day upon the stubborn enemies of himself and of his people. He was lovely in his pardon, with which he has pardoned sinners like me. Who, though in our grief, he has reconciled us and established us in him, in the grace he communicates, in the consolations he administers to us, in the peace and the joy he gives to his saints, in the assurance that he gives us through our sufferings, that we will one day finally be complete. What shall I say then, Owen writes? There is no end of his excellencies or desirableness. He says this looking out a window of 12 graves. There is no end of his excellencies or desirableness. This is our beloved. This is our friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Friends, Jesus is the one to be beloved and to be desired. And he's using your griefs, though very real, to remind you that he is with you, that they're for his glory, that he enters into your griefs with you, that he knows how to handle you and will point you to faith in him, and that he is your only hope. And as you embrace those truths, and as you see him as more desirable than anything else, you find that the light through the darkness of your grief is a belief in the resurrection to come. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, many of us, um, we want answers, and we want direction, and Lord, we want you to very specifically show us out of our grief And Lord, you don't promise us that. You want to give us wisdom and discernment. You want to give us yourself. So Father, would you help us to realize that there is no end to your desirableness or your excellencies. Even those of us most gifted with speech cannot find words, as Augustine said, to describe you. Father, I pray that you'll bless all those who in my hearing Respond in faith. Lead us to embrace your resurrection, to know that it is the hope through the darkness. It is the light in the valley. It is the pathway to the mountaintop of our fellowship, of our security, of our assurance in your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.